I am from Durham, North Carolina. How does this calculator work? But also, how does this person work? Believe me, <laughs> I am always trying to find a way to do things simpler. Really wasn't interested at all in that tenure track thing. I got some research money and built a solar energy laboratory on the top of my engineering building. The average cost of a lawyer is $300 right now. The average American makes a tenth of that. Black people in particular are extremely innovative. You're never going to be a billion dollar business selling someone else's product. We're dealing with a broken business model in the legal profession. We don't have to always win, but we ought to have the right to be heard. What's up, Unfound Nation? Dan Kehanya here. Thanks so much for checking out another episode of Founders Unfound. That was Dr. Sonia Ebron, co-founder and CEO of Courtroom 5, a company that makes an automated legal toolbox that helps people represent themselves in court. Sonia has one of those amazing backgrounds, engineering, academia, a repeat entrepreneur, but it took a challenging experience of her own with the legal system to unleash her mission and passion for the startup life. She has a strong conviction that fairness in the justice system shouldn't depend on inequitable access to knowledge or resources. In our conversation, she talked about the allure of engineering, doing a startup in Durham, North Carolina, and so much more. Sonia has a great story, so listen in. Our episode is sponsored by Founders Live, a global platform built to inspire, educate, and entertain the modern entrepreneur. Be sure to visit founderslive.com or check for a link in the show notes. Before we continue, please make sure to like and subscribe the podcast. We're available anywhere you get podcasts, even YouTube. I so appreciate everyone in Unfound Nation who shows up to listen to the great founders we get on the show. And they appreciate it too. And if you like what you hear, drop us a five-star review on Apple or Podchaser.com. And one quick note on this episode, we had a few technical challenges, which can happen from time to time. So don't be alarmed if the sound changes a bit partway through the episode. Now, on with the episode. Stay safe and hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented and underestimated backgrounds. This is another episode in our continuing series on founders of African descent. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. Today, we have Dr. Sonia Ebron, co-founder and CEO of Courtroom 5, a company that makes an automated legal toolbox that helps people represent themselves in court. Welcome to the show, Sonia. We're so happy to have you on. Thanks for making the time. I've been looking forward to it, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. Terrific. So let's just start quickly with help the listeners understand exactly what is Courtroom 5. Awesome. As you said, it's an automated legal toolbox for people handling more complex civil cases in court. You don't need us for a traffic ticket or your eviction case or small claims. But if you're handling a foreclosure or an employment discrimination case, maybe a medical malpractice suit, as millions of Americans are each year on your own, then you need Courtroom 5. We're the only solution for people to manage those complex cases without a lawyer. I love it. And I, I think it's brilliant and disruptive and in an industry that is, you know, I love businesses that it's like, it's been the same way for like hundreds of years. And the only technology benefit is to the supply side where they make it a little easier for them to deliver the same thing, but charge the same amount. So I love the idea and the concept and the vision. But before we dive more into the company, let's hear a little bit more about you. Can you tell us about where you grew up and where you're from? I am from Durham, North Carolina, my hometown. I've traveled over mostly the Southeast around the country, but we relocated back to Durham a couple of years ago to really give Courtroom 5 the home it needed. Here, love the people, love the culture. It's, it's just the perfect uh, place to run a startup these days. So that's my background. I'm an electrical engineer by trade, a PhD electrical engineer. I'm not a lawyer. I don't have any formal legal training at all. My co-founder and I got into this project because we found ourselves over the years getting sued or having to sue people, not having the resources to hire a lawyer. Most folks don't understand just uh, how expensive that whole process is. And so we thought, hey, we're pretty smart. We ought to be able to handle this ourselves. Not so. The law doesn't make any rational sense whatsoever. And so we got our butts kicked. 
a couple of times until we figured out how to navigate the system. Realized there were a lot of people, many of whom looked like us, but who didn't have the sort of educational advantages we did, uh, but who needed to know what we'd learned. And so that's sort of how we got into Courtroom 5. My co-founder, Deborah, is a PhD librarian. Uh, It's really one of the smartest people, wonderful people that I know in the world. And so, as I said, she was in the same situation, right? How do we get the information that people need to know to them effectively without being a lawyer? And so that's sort of how we fell into Courtroom 5. It's been a blessing ever since. I love it. But let's turn back a little bit. So I want to know more about how do you become an engineer? What in you when you were younger, because I was an engineer, I graduated with an engineering degree. I no longer practice, as they say. But I'm just curious, were you analytical? Did you like problem solving? Were you a tinkerer? Like, how did you end up in engineering at first? Yeah, I've always been a tinkerer, not just with uh, devices and machines and that sort of stuff, but frankly, with everything. I wanted to just understand the process behind everything. There seemed to me just intuitively that there was some logic to how everything worked. Strangely enough, I'm in the law where that's not the case, but but uh, early <laughs> but early on, you know, I felt there was an order to the universe and that it had to be present everywhere. And I wanted to understand it. So sure, how does this calculator work? But also, how does this person work? What drives this person, right? How does this uh, political system work? How does this economic system work? There seemed to be, there seemed to have to be some logic or patterns that you could identify and use to make things work better. And I was just always really curious about those things. But it was the, and I'm dating myself, this was back in the in the 80s, 70s and 80s, where there was a huge impetus on getting Black people in particular into engineering. I didn't know any engineers, I'd never heard of the field. Uh, nobody in my family was an engineer. But there were folks on TV and on radio saying, if you know your math and science, you know, we need more Black engineers. And so my mom took that to heart and just corralled me into engineering school here in North Carolina, and particularly in Durham and Raleigh. We've got some really good engineering schools. I ended up at North Carolina State, which is just a fantastic engineering program and it has for, for many decades. And so I ended up there, one of the first few Black students uh, on the campus. I struggled for sure, primarily with the social environment, but I made it through. And one of the things you may know, Dan, as an engineer, is that the secret to our success is trying to find innovative ways to do things so that we don't have to do them manually, right? And I really took to that as I'm one of the laziest people in the world, as it turns out, right? (laughs) I don't believe that. It is the secret to my success, believe me. (laughs) I am always trying to find a way to do things simpler. Again, trying to find the pattern that makes this thing work so that we can automate it and people don't have to do it. And so I did really well in engineering school. I had done well in math and science in high school. And so, you know, I came fairly prepared. I did really well. I graduated I was invited to go to graduate school. Again, I didn't know too many people who had gone to graduate school and didn't know much about that process, but was offered a full ride to grad school. And so I took it. Always easier, right? Because I'm one of the laziest people in the world. Always easier than getting a real job uh, staying in school. And so that's uh, that's what I did. Nice. And so it sounds like your family, uh, your mom was supportive and encouraging of this direction. So that's, I think there's this combination of nature and nurture, right? Like you, you have it in you. And if there's an environment that will celebrate and endorse that, it it makes it easier to sort of let that shine. So it sounds like you had that. And it's really interesting to hear about the social aspects. I think people underestimate the power of the social dynamic in college. And especially if it's bringing together people from culturally disparate places, there's obviously a vision around that being a benefit in the long run. But in the short term, that can be that can be hard, especially if you feel like you're part of the smaller group that there aren't that many of. Yeah, it was. It was very isolating. I, uh, you know, my high school was probably about 40 percent black. I remember having conversations about alternating the ethnicity of the homecoming king and queen because we were always battling and we had some fairly progressive 
for the times, fairly progressive uh, leadership at our high school, both on the student council and the adults, the teachers and, and, and principals. And so we were able to just sit around a coffee table and, and work those things out. That was great. But it was because there were so many Black and Latino kids in the school. And so when I got to NC State, I think the ratio hadn't changed much, frankly, since I was there. It's about 6% Black. It was a bit of a culture shock. You know, just a shock of being in a college environment. There were tens of thousands of students on that campus even then, many more now. And then seeing so few Black students, um, you know, it, it was it was quite difficult. But it's one of many shocks I've had to, you know, many other people have had to deal with over the years. And so you deal with what you have in front of you. Well, I'm impressed. And I, and especially since you kind of went on to the full sort of height of academia. And I would imagine that there's, once you get to those PhD levels, there's a big draw to becoming an academic yourself. And that's yes. sort of maybe how you ended up being a professor. Yes, absolutely. It was, uh, you know, you're almost on a, a track towards academia. I had some opportunities to go into the corporate world as well. I was uh, coming out of a PhD program, but I've always enjoyed teaching. I did some of that in graduate school and enjoyed it a great deal. So, yeah, going into academia was very easy. I wasn't prepared. I really wasn't interested at all in that tenure track thing. I never did the, the tenure process. It just never made any sense to me, frankly, that you could work hard for a few years and have a job for life. I wasn't incentivized by that at all. But I know, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for the profession and for people who did seek that track. And that's great. It wasn't for me. I really loved being in front of students. I enjoyed some research, some technical research. I've got you know, some fairly well-cited scholarship out there, but it wasn't a love for me. You know, I, as soon as I took my first teaching job, I got some research money and built a solar energy laboratory on the top of my engineering building, primarily because I wanted to learn it. We, you know, I studied electrical engineering. I had no course in solar electricity. Mind you, this is in Florida. Uh, where I got my doctorate. And, oh, wow. Right. And how can you be in the Sunshine State and never have a course in electrical engineering on solar electric power? So I wanted to learn it. So I got some funding to build that out. I taught a couple of courses on it, again, primarily for selfish reasons. If you want to learn something, try to teach it. Right. And so I did that and then quickly found myself in my first entrepreneurial venture, selling solar electric modules for motor homes. Florida at the time, you know, grew by about a million vehicles every winter because folks were coming down from the north where it was really cold to spend their wintertime in, in sunny Florida. And they would oftentimes have to spend the night in these smelly, dirty motorhome parks, you know, uh, <laughs> where they really wanted to park on the beach, right, or in front of a lake. And you needed to charge a battery in order to do that. So we started selling those many, many years ago. So that's how I sort of found myself in entrepreneurship. I ended up uh, quitting my college job, doing some international travel because solar electricity was taking off around the world. So I got to travel with some government officials to some really interesting places. And that was great. That business died out over after a few years. And I went back to teaching college. Uh, loved it. Absolutely loved it. I switched my focus to HBCUs at that point and found uh, a love there. So Taught for a little while at Norfolk State, jumped the bridge, as we say, and uh, went over to Hampton for a little while and then got smacked upside the head by another entrepreneurial venture and left to go do that. So I ended up running an energy cooperative in Atlanta for many years. And so, yeah, I've been in and out of academia all this time. Finally left it alone. Oh, many years ago. Yeah, that's great. So so this is interesting. So you, you weave in and out. So I know a lot of academics. and. They do have some, obviously, innovative DNA, but sometimes almost the commercialization is an affront to them. Like, it's like, I want to do the purity of research. So I'm curious, like that first opportunity with solar, like, what was the sort of the moment where you said, you know, this is much more interesting selling these things or the economics or the business or the customer side of the market. What was that moment like, like when you said, yeah this is better than academics or this is something I want to pursue more than what I want to do in academics. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, you know, I got into solar again because I wanted to learn it. The field, you know, was fairly well developed. It's grown tremendously since. So the research wasn't complete then, but I wasn't actually doing research, serious research 
on the development of solar modules. I was doing research on how to use them, right, for commercial applications, right? And so that was fantastic, but that's what naturally led me into trying to sell them. I was already on the commercial side in my research. I wasn't trying to improve the efficiency of the modules or you know, make them work better in some ways. I, yeah, I wasn't on the heavy tech side. I was on the usability side of it in my research. So it was a fairly natural, you know, when you see a huge market, a new idea, nobody was doing that at the time. It just made a lot of sense to me. And I always had an entrepreneurial bone in my body that being in academia just was not satisfying. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, and I do think that there is, I wouldn't say it's a gene, but there is some predetermination in us, I think, about being an entrepreneur. Because somebody else in that situation could have said, I'll go and pitch GE or I'll go and pitch an energy company about this and see if they want to license it and either go work for them as a researcher or just keep going down the academic road. But something in you said, you know what, let me go see if I can figure out this on my own. So you must have that in you. I do. I do. And I go back and forth a lot about which just expressed there is a gene uh, of sorts or an instinct for entrepreneurs. And many people think entrepreneurs are born and not nurtured. But at the same time, I've also been nurtured a lot. You know, my grandfather ran a uh, corner store, for instance. I've had relatives who run Oh, dry cleaners, restaurants, you know, small businesses that way. What I'm doing, maybe on a different scale, but it's not all that different when it comes down to it. You've got to solve somebody's problem, you know, and I think that is something that almost everybody wants to do, whether we call it entrepreneurship or not. There are those, as you said, academics who have, you know, and it's some some innovation to them. It may be a lack of education on entrepreneurship that's keeping them in academia rather than out, you know, solving problems in the so-called real world here. Yeah. Yeah. This, that's an interesting thing to explore for sure. But so then you had the second company, right? Tell us about that yeah. really quickly. It was great. I just had a, an inspiration that we as Black people spent so much money, right, outside of our communities. I don't recall the statistics, but, you know, dollars that come into the Black communities don't stay a long time. All right. Uh, we have our mortgages or our rent. We have our utilities. We have our food. And very little of that is produced within our communities. Right. And so money comes in, money goes out. It feels almost like we are money launderers in many respects. Right. And I felt that, you know, I, my focus had been on utilities as an electrical engineer, in particular electric utilities. And I had begun to learn more about the business side of how those utilities operated. And I just felt that we, as Black communities, needed to do more with the money that we did have. We needed to hold on to it just a little bit longer, if we could. And so I had an idea that in deregulated energy markets, that's that's where you don't have a monopoly. You have many suppliers trying to sell you your utilities, that there may have been an opportunity for us to play that game in a way that kept more money in our communities for just a few minutes longer, really, right, to do some good. And so the idea for Black Energy, as it turned out, we named the company, was to go into a deregulated utilities market and negotiate amongst the suppliers. This is not something you would have had an opportunity to do with a monopoly, but you could negotiate amongst the suppliers to be able to serve a block of consumers. And as a result of that, maybe you could get lower rates for those consumers but also allow those consumers to aggregate their energy dollars and devote them to some nonprofits that were doing good work in black communities. And so that was what we did. We did that for about 10 or 11 years in Atlanta. Atlanta and Georgia larger had natural gas deregulation. So there were at the time, maybe 19 or 20 natural gas suppliers that we could talk to. And we had conversations with almost all of them and settled on two or three over the years that gave us really good deals for our blocks of consumers. And so we did that. We also paired it with energy efficiency equipment, you know, some light bulbs, toilet um, uh, water saving devices, shower devices, and that sort of stuff to, to help people lower their utility bills as well. So yeah, it was great. It was wonderful. It, it was probably a bigger vision than I could have executed on my own. We didn't do venture capital or that sort of fundraising for that company. As it turned out, the opportunity and deregulation was not as large as I thought it was. Uh, it stopped growing. Uh, in fact, I think right now most states are uh, still have a monopoly supplier. 
So the market didn't grow the way I thought it would. And we sort of got bottlenecked in Georgia, which is not a bad place to do business. But nonetheless, it never took off the way I thought it would. And then while I was treading water there, the um, financial crisis hit and pretty much took us out. So uh, I let that company uh, gracefully decline and went back to teaching for a little while until I figured out what next to do. Nice. I mean, not nice that you had to go through that experience, but a tremendous learning. And and it's really interesting because we're going to get ready to talk about Courtroom 5. I see this initial spark of economic empowerment with business opportunity and social impact weaving itself together in that company. And so, but we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Sonia Ibrun from Courtroom 5. Hey everyone, this is Nick Hughes, founder and CEO of Founders Live. We are the global venue for modern entrepreneurs, where we inspire, educate, and entertain entrepreneurs through our global online platform, a community where you can find various aspects of education, help, and inspiration to make you a better entrepreneur, as well as our fun pitch competitions that are virtual and in-person when possible, where we highlight emerging talent from all corners of the world. Join us to help with our pursuit of entrepreneurial equality, which says no matter what you look like, where you are born, how you identify gender or orientation, everyone deserves equal opportunity for success and wealth creation. So find our membership options at founderslive.com. So we're back with Sonia from Courtroom 5, Dr. Sonia Ebron. So we were just talking about your last company and sort of the reemergence back into teaching. And so where did Courtroom 5 come from? Like, what was the spark for the concept for Courtroom 5? Yeah, you know, I love teaching, as I mentioned earlier, but I knew by the time I got back into it that it was going to be a very short journey for me. I was not committed to an academic career, would never be. And so I spent the time trying to decide what's the next idea. And, you know, there are ideas everywhere really for billion dollar businesses. There's a process for finding them, but they're really not that hard to find. For me, as you mentioned, it has to be coupled with some sort of social justice mission. I just, I'm not cut out to just make money, unfortunately, <laughs> right? But I was looking for something that where I could have some social impact and make money, do good while doing well. And so yeah, my co-founder, Deborah and I were trying to, we decided we wanted to do business together. I got my uh, electrical engineering chops, my technical chops. She had great uh, information discovery chops as a librarian and information scientist. And so we knew an IT company would be something that we would end up doing. And we explored a number of concepts over, I don't know, 18 months or so. And finally, you know, decided that uh, litigation support would be where we needed to go. I knew a lot about electrical engineering and techie stuff. She knew a lot about information and how people search for it and use it. But the thing we decided we both knew best was how to represent ourselves in court. Independently, we'd had you know some cases that we'd lost and some we'd won and had learned something that we discovered many other people needed to learn. And so that is sort of where we decided to apply our wares to devote our talents was on helping people defend themselves in court. What made you decide to represent yourselves in the situations where you would have had a lawyer if you had chosen it? Yeah, because money. Mm. <laughs> uh, lawyers are very expensive. The average cost of a lawyer is $300 right now. The average American makes a tenth of that, right? The average wage is less than $30 an hour. Mm. And it's just not... Feasible. We're dealing with a broken business model in the legal profession. So there are two kinds of lawyers, right? There's the corporate lawyer. They, they serve businesses and, you know, they do corporate law. And then there are the consumer lawyers, what everybody calls ambulance chases, right? But folks who are dealing with, uh, with regular people. And those folks are having a really hard time finding clients right now because most Americans just cannot afford a lawyer on that old classic full representation model where you've got a legal problem, you walk into a lawyer's office, you explain your problem. They say, okay, I'll take your case. I need a $5,000 retainer, right? And if you're lucky enough to have $5,000 to retain that lawyer and have a second conversation, good for you. Most Americans have trouble finding $400 right now in an emergency, okay? 
But even if you do have that $5,000, it's not going to last you very long. A lawyer is going to come back in some period of time, long before your case is resolved and say, you know what? I didn't expect the opposition to be so tough, but they filed this and then that and then that. And I'm going to need another $15,000, $20,000 to take this you know, further. All right. Hey, if you're lucky enough to have that, way to go. Okay. But uh, most of us don't. And so what has happened is that many, many people can afford to start with a lawyer, to retain a lawyer. Very few can afford to get their cases resolved with a lawyer. And of course, there's the, the vast majority of us that can't ever get that lawyer to begin with. So what do folks do? These are very complicated cases. These are not what you see on television. I'll put it that way. Judge Judy's court and Judge Joe Brown and, and those folks, you know, we've all seen that on television. That's not real court. In real court, you're probably going to file dozens, sometimes hundreds of technical legal documents. They have to be formatted in a certain way. They have to speak to a judge in a certain way just to get you to the next step in your case. And some of these cases take years for you to get an actual decision based on the facts of your case, right? You may think you have a great case because the facts are in your favor. You may even have evidence to back up those facts, to prove those facts. But if you don't go through the right procedures to get those facts heard, you're out of luck. You will never have a decision based on facts. They will be based on some procedures, whether you actually were able to get to a hearing on those facts. And most Americans, most people without legal knowledge have no way to navigate those processes. And so my co-founder Deborah and I had gone through those things and we'd learned a little bit more, a little bit more each case. Unfortunately, this happened to us multiple times. And so we just learned over time. We learned pretty quickly, right? As academics and people in training to be academics. So we, um, you know, we got to a place where we were able to navigate those things and to compete with a lawyer in court. And around about that time, we were having the discussion on what kind of business do we want? We were like, well, who needs what we know, right? Right now, I can't go sell solar cells, solar modules on uh, motorhomes. That's standard. Many motorhomes already come with them these days, right? Deborah did not have as much entrepreneurial experience, but she had lots of experience with regular people coming into libraries with their questions and knowing how to distribute that information to them. So anyway, uh, we decided that the thing we knew best was how to represent ourselves in court and that there were desperate people out there who needed that information. And so that's what got us into it and has kept us into it all these years. I mean, we are we're helping people save their homes and get better settlements than they might expect in their debt collection cases. So they're not having their wages garnished, you know, that sort of thing. We're helping people keep their kids, right, or get access to their kids. It's um, a very broad range of cases that people are handling on our platform. And I mean, we're just grateful to be able to serve in that way every day. That's great. But tell us a little bit more how it works. So like yeah. how like if I'm a customer I guess you'd call me a client of uh, courtroom five. Like, what is it I'm doing? What am I getting? How does it, how does it work? Yeah. So people come to us at all stages of their litigation, right? So if you are preparing to sue somebody or you've just been sued, you know, you're very early in your case. We have other folks who come to us after they've actually lost and may want to appeal a judgment, right? And get that thing overturned and everywhere in between. Again, this is a very long process. And so what we do is we capture the information about where you are in your case so that we can help you based on where you are. You will tell us what court you're in, what kind of claim you're dealing with. You'll tell us who the parties are in your case. You'll tell us what's been filed in your case. And then you'll give us a little information about what got you into the lawsuit. What are those underlying facts, right, that caused your lawsuit? You do all that for free. But once you do that, then you pay for a subscription where you can start to handle your case. And the first thing that happens is we tell you where you are in the whole process of litigation and start pointing you to the training that is most relevant to you in that step. So if you were at the end of your case, let's say, again, you've lost your case, you need to appeal. You don't really need to worry about how good the complaint was right, or anything like that. You're past that right now. If you're at the very beginning of your case, by way of contrast, then it's too early for you to start thinking about what kind of evidence might prove or disprove the facts. you got a lot of procedure to go through before that's even going to be relevant to you. So we point you to the right training based on where you are. Once you've had that training, then we help you decide what your next step should be. All right. You're at this place. 
there are some a range of, of options for you that are going to make the most sense. And so we hope you evaluate those options and decide what you're going to do. And then once you've decided, well, then let's go analyze your case. There are some facts that you're dealing with. Judge won't need to hear about them, but you need to start thinking about them. And so we walk you through the elements, the legal elements of whatever your claim or your defenses might be. We've got all of that available for you. So, for instance, if you're dealing with a a foreclosure case and let's say you are in Missouri, right? Well, the Missouri law says that there are certain things that have to be proven by your bank or servicer in order to kick you out of your house. We show you what those things are, right? And then you can associate the facts as you know them in your case to those elements and see how good the, the bank's case is. You'll have some defenses that you want to apply. You know, maybe this bank was fraudulent. There was some predatory loans or whatever defenses there may be. We show you what they are in the law, what they are for you. And if you're eligible to make some of those defenses. So we walk you through just analyzing your I imagine that's, both sides. that's challenging, though, from the perspective on your side of, like you said, you're not a lawyer. Right? Everybody I talk to, as soon as they give me anything that sounds like legal advice, right, they're always like, I'm not a lawyer and this isn't legal yep, advice. So exactly. how, how do you balance the direction and information that mm-hmm. you give without, you know, sort of bumping up against that? that yeah, challenge? yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. We are able to give legal information all day, every day. We don't give advice, right? But anybody can go look up the elements of a foreclosure in Missouri. It's public information. It's the law, right? It's just that you don't know that you need to do that if you're a foreclosure defendant and you don't know how to find the information. That is what our toolbox does for you. So, I mean, it's a great story. It's one of those tremendous opportunities to disrupt an industry, as we talked about before, and really change the way some things have worked for so long. And I feel like there's been sort of this tacit collusion between the academic community and the regulatory oversight and the law firms as a business. They all sort of want to keep it as a status quo. And it really doesn't do justice or allow people to get justice. So I'm I'm super excited about what you're doing. And so appreciate that. But tell us, what's your big vision for the company? Let's say you're a success in however way you want to define that in a few years, economically or impact. What does that look like to you? What does success for Courtroom 5 look like to you? Success, I think, for us means that people have the right to be heard in court. We've got tremendous problems, not just amongst ethnic groups or you know age groups, but just in general, folks are not feeling bought in, if you will, to the society in which they live. And a part of that is because we don't have, we aren't feeling heard in a larger sense by the people who govern us. We've got three branches of government. So we, you know, have a fragile right to vote. We can participate at the executive branch, at the legislative branch through our collective votes. The justice system, though, is the one branch of government where we don't have to be part of a collective in order to get heard, at least on paper. We ought to be able to go into a court of law and get a court order that speaks to our individual circumstances. That's set up that way for a reason, and that's to give individuals that personal buy-in to the society. We don't have to always win, but we ought to have the right to be heard. And if we don't have that, it's questionable whether you actually have a democracy. And so that is really the problem we are working on here, making sure that people have an opportunity, a fair opportunity to be heard by their government and at least a good reason to buy into the society. Because if we don't, we have all kinds of pathologies happening if you don't feel that you're being heard. That is ultimately the problem that we're fixing. Yes, we expect to to find tremendous financial rewards and all of that is valuable. I'm not turning away a dollar. Don't misunderstand me there. But we're really out to fix a social problem. We want to give people the right to be heard. That has real meaningful consequences in, in people's lives. You know, we have faced the loss of a home, potentially. We have been threatened with having our wages garnished. Now, right or wrong, I mean, sure, I didn't pay the credit card bill. I'll readily acknowledge that. I can also tell you it was a predatory loan, right, that I was fighting. And I think many other people find themselves in that situation where you're just getting a raw deal 
from the corporate system and you want to be able to have a branch of government take care of you, right? At least hear your side of the case. And so that is what we want to do on the ground, give people a reason to buy into the society that we all live in. I love it. That's a great, great vision. And uh, and your passion definitely comes through. So, but we're going to take another short break and we'll be right back with Sonia Ebron from Courtroom 5. Hey everyone, this is Nick Hughes, founder and CEO of Founders Live. We are the global venue for modern entrepreneurs where we inspire, educate, and entertain entrepreneurs through our global online platform, the community where you can find various aspects of education, help, and inspiration to make you a better entrepreneur, as well as our fun pitch competitions that are virtual and in-person when possible, where we highlight emerging talent from all corners of the world. Join us to help with our pursuit of entrepreneurial equality, which says no matter what you look like, where you are born, how you identify gender or orientation, everyone deserves equal opportunity for success and wealth creation. So find our membership options at founderslive.com. So we're back with Sonia. So tell us a little bit about sort of what Ross Baird calls the triple blind spot, right? Which is your, you know, an underrepresented founder working on a market that isn't necessarily obvious to the status quo and you're doing it in Durham, North Carolina right? Which isn't necessarily known for its, I don't know if there's a a silicon fill in the blank for it, but it's not New York or Silicon Valley. How do you think about doing your business there as a black woman founder, focusing on the mission that you are doing? Yeah, fantastic. So I'm in Durham because I love the city and Deborah was happy to join me here. She went to college here as well. And it's just a fantastic place to live. Startup ecosystem is beside the point. It's really a wonderful place to be on this earth. And so that's, I guess, our primary reason for being here. But there is also a significant startup ecosystem, a tremendous amount of support, whether it is from nonprofits, entrepreneurship, educational resources, angel funders, and venture capital. All of that is is right here. And of course, we've got three major universities and several others So we've got all the intellectual capital we need to build the right team for our company as well. It's a wonderful place to be. Uh, You may know it's recently in the news. I mean, Silicon Valley is clearing out fairly rapidly. In this age of the Zoom meeting, there's not a reason for people to have to occupy the the Google campus or or any of those other places. And so folks are heading out of California in droves. And they are relocating to places like Durham. And so where, you know, it's much, much more affordable and all of the academic and intellectual resources you need and cultural resources you need are are right here. And so we've recently had some great news that Google is building a branch and a, a major office here in Durham. Apple just last week announced that they were investing a billion dollars in a campus here as well. And so it's not just the people that are uh, heading out of California. It's, it's major uh, industries deciding to build right here in Durham and Raleigh as well. It's Makes a sense. wonderful time for us to be here. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it is it's fantastic. So we're, I think, going to find uh, over the next few years that we've got all the resources necessary to build the uh, billion-dollar company that we envision. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, and especially with the university horsepower there and lifestyle and all these things. And, you know, it's funny, we've interviewed 30 plus entrepreneurs and they've been from all over. We actually haven't interviewed somebody from Silicon Valley where I spent a lot of time myself. So Charlotte, Atlanta, Miami, you know, and I think you're right about this inflection point of companies realizing that the physical density around a specific place isn't necessarily the secret formula to success. So, so good for you being an anchor there, being one of the ones that they look back in 20 years and say, yeah, courtroom five came out of here. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what we're looking for. We want to be able to support uh, my hometown by being a big business and someone that hires lots of people and supports other entrepreneurs and some of the nonprofits in the area as well. So as a black woman founder, do you feel like there's been some challenges that have been placed in your path 
that you don't see others having to go through? You know, I think and the way I, I often uh, answer this is with an analogy to climate change, right? So we know there are, we know the climate is changing and there are some patterns that you can see. So we're having more and more weather, bad weather events, right? Billion dollar weather events. But the thing is that you cannot look at a specific tornado or a forest fire or flood and say, okay, that's because of climate change, right? And so that's the sort of the way I look at my experiences in building company and working with investors and that fundraising processes and so forth. Yeah, there are patterns. It's obviously, obviously there are some serious disadvantages. If all the money is in a certain demographic and some of the better ideas, in my opinion, are being created by black and brown people and women more largely, then yeah, there are some patterns there. I know that I have to have more meetings with investors than you know, somebody that looks like Mark Zuckerberg, right? Investors pattern match like humans do in general. And if the folks that have made a lot of money for investors tend to look like Mark Zuckerberg, for whatever reason there are, then that's where a lot of the money is going to flow, right? Even though the physical characteristics of Mark Zuckerberg have absolutely nothing to do with his success, people right. pattern match and they, you know, they pick characteristics that are, that we're trained to look for. So, so that has been a challenge, no doubt about it. But I think at the end of the day, you know, a billion dollar concept is a billion dollar concept. And while I have to have more meetings to convey that and to maybe get investors past the fact that I'm a black woman and that that may have some uh, meaning to them, you know, a billion dollar businesses, it becomes quite evident here. Once we explain what it is that we're doing and the market we're trying to serve and the pain points of people in that market and the solution that we've developed for them, the unique solution we've developed for them. Yeah, I mean, I at the end of the day, we're going to raise the funds we need to raise. I have absolute confidence uh, in that. So it's That's a great. challenge. But yeah, I mean, there are other challenges, right, that, that I need to focus on as well. So I don't spend too much time being concerned about it. Makes sense. Very healthy. And, and it's sort of that driven perspective of the entrepreneur, like, show me a wall and I'll show you a way to get over it, under it, around it, through it. And that's yeah. a, the resilience you need for any entrepreneur. But maybe to flip it around the other way, have there, I know you went through, you've done Techstars, you've been involved with Google for startups. Have there been organizations or experiences that have been uplifting or put more wind in your sails as a entrepreneur who happens to be a black woman? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I would certainly point to those two. Google is just a continuing powerful resource for us in so many ways. There's been direct funding from Google. They've provided us with intellectual resources as well, you know, and, and, and credits that we can use in, in the form of cash in a variety of ways. I mean, the support there has been extraordinary. Techstars, the network is unbeatable. If we are trying to build a team, if we are trying to reach partners here and there, Techstars it, it has a nexus to that person or organization. This has been extraordinary there. But also, I would point to a CEO organization funding mechanism where average people, people with $1,000 that they can contribute to a, to a startup fund, can get involved in investing and have that investment go to people working on a sustainable development goals that the UN has produced. And so we are one of the five women-owned companies in the U.S. to be a CEO venture this year. Uh, that comes with a, a five-year no-interest loan that several digits added to our bank account as a result of that. And that's fantastic. But the network there, these group of uh, women activators, again, each of who have, have contributed only $1,000. That's the limit, right? They're a very democratic organization. But these are women who are in some very powerful positions in U.S. society who look to support the startups they funded in some very powerful ways. And so we've certainly benefited from, uh, from having access to that network. There are some homegrown uh, here at local North Carolina organizations that have been very helpful to us as well. We won a couple of years ago a wonderful grant, a competitive business grant, non-dilutive funding, just to really get us off the ground. So we're very happy and grateful to the NCIDEA Foundation for that. A couple of legal tech uh, incubators and accelerators happen to be local, but they serve a national uh, audience. We, were, we went through the Duke Law 
incubator, for instance, and also the LexisNexis. If you're a lawyer, you know that that's um, uh, where you get access to your case law and some other resources. But they've got a very powerful, very strong accelerator for legal tech businesses like ours. And so we've gotten support from a number, a number of organizations over the years that have helped us and continue to help us uh, in various ways. That's great. That's great. And I, and I think even five, six years ago, these kinds of resources just were not as profound and they weren't casting as wide a net for those that don't have, you know, kind of explicit mandates around this. So it's tremendous to hear that there's sort of these entities that are both supportive around networks and capital and helping companies at the earliest stages. We all know that this is one of the hardest times when you're really, really getting started and and having something like non-dilutive funding can be so powerful. It's been extraordinary. Yep. That's awesome. So my last question is usually the kind of quintessential, if you could go back in time and tell yourself some advice. So since you've been a repeat entrepreneur, usually we ask people, you know, before your entrepreneurial journey began, but you could pick either, you know, before your solar journey, before your energy journey or before the courtroom five journey. Like if you could go back in time and talk to the Sonia at any one of those instances and, and give her advice about what to expect, what to do, what not to do as an entrepreneur, what would you tell her? Yeah, I would tell her that being an entrepreneur is not such an unusual thing. Entrepreneurs are really everywhere, right? I spent so much time asking myself if I was really an entrepreneur, if this is really what uh, I'm set out to do. It was a waste of effort and energy. I should have just accepted my calling and taken that issue off the table. So I would have absolutely cautioned against wasting time on those kinds of questions. Everybody is an entrepreneur in one way or another, whether you are out to make money or out to solve a problem in a nonprofit organization or whether you are working for a big company but on some innovation within it. Everybody, I mean, school teachers, everybody is doing something innovative. And that's really what entrepreneurship is about. The other thing, though, that I would say is that Black people in particular are extremely innovative. We have, perhaps due to our history, developed some very sharp innovation skills that I don't think we appreciate enough. We are natural, almost natural innovators, and therefore uh, we've got an edge on entrepreneurship. I would just encourage uh, anybody who has that inclination to just jump into it with full confidence because we've got strengths, particularly as Black people, that are not recognized until we demonstrate them. And then one other thing I would add, I would definitely caution myself that there are all kinds of businesses. There's the barbershops, there's the restaurants. There are service industries everywhere. And, you know, there are grocery stores. There are other folks that sell actual hard products. And then there are the real big companies, the ones that develop innovations that are going to last for years. All of those kinds of companies have developed their own products. I mentioned to you my experience with Black Energy. You know, we never made any energy right? No electricity, no natural gas, none of that. And that was never even in the game plan. And it should have been, okay? You're not really going to be a billion dollar business unless you have your own product. You're never going to be a billion dollar business selling someone else's product. And so real innovation comes down to creating something new. It doesn't have to be physical, right? I'm pushing electrons around a computer board, right? Uh, So it doesn't have to be some device or anything like that but it does have to be something that you own, right? That you have some intellectual property around if you're going to be a billion dollar business. And so I wish I had known that uh, a little bit earlier. That's great. That's great. And, you know, we we have our journeys and our 10,000 hours. And so we can always look back and see how we could have improved things. But sometimes you have to go through some of that stuff to realize it. So, So that's great. Very sage and wise advice. So we're coming to the end of our time, unfortunately, but before we go, how can the Unfoundation audience be helpful to you or, and or to Courtroom 5? Spread the word. That's our biggest challenge. We've got millions of people, uh, and frankly, millions of Black and Latino people, Black and Brown people who need what Courtroom 5 offers, but will oftentimes hear about us too late. 
Uh, so if you know of someone who needs to know about Courtroom 5, give, give them a word about them. Have them come over to Courtroom 5, and that's the number 5, courtroom5.com, and get some help. We've got very affordable services for anyone there, relative, certainly relative to hiring a lawyer or losing your case. And so, yeah, help us, help us spread the word. And then secondly, just reach out. If there are ways that you'd like to partner, we're always looking to work with uh, lawyers. We're always looking to work with clerks of court. Uh, if you know someone in the legal aid organization, we're looking to partner with, with all of those to help us help the millions of people who need us. That's great. And are there any other uh, handles or, or ways that people can find out more or, or reach out to you? Absolutely. So you can find me on uh, LinkedIn most easily. Just search on my name. It's S-O-N-J-A, last name E-B-R-O-N. Find me on LinkedIn and send me a connection. I'd love to, to reach as many people as we can and just be in touch there. We are on Twitter and Facebook, Five Legal. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Courtroom Five Legal. So reach out, like us, follow us, share all of the great content that we have on, on those platforms and just, um, yeah, be in touch with us. I love it. And I forgot to ask, what is Courtroom 5? There must be some story behind that, the name. <laughs> Courtroom 5. So Deborah and I were meeting one day in our office and trying to figure out what we should call this company. We had begun to sell some of the information that we developed for people and felt like this was actually going to take off and we needed a proper name. And so in the background, we always have some music playing. And that particular day we were playing Looney's I got five on it. And Deborah at one point said, you know, we could call this courtroom anything. And right then the chorus line came on and we both looked at each other and said, let's just put five on it. So that's the, that's the origin story of courtroom five. I love it. I love it. I was thinking for some reason, like, oh, this is like the place where the courtroom where people go to represent themselves <laughs> in some, you know, municipal court building. But well, yeah, this has been yeah. this has been so great. Thank you so much, Sonia, for taking the time. We really appreciate it. It's been an absolute joy, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Sonia Ebron, and our sponsor, Founders Live. This podcast was produced by We Edit Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, or simply go to foundersunfound.com forward slash listen to. That's listen to. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn at Founders Unfound. I am Dan Kihanya, and you've been listening to Founders Unfound.